Thank you. It is a great pleasure to be here. I love the exhibition, and I love seeing the Guggenheim collection in different venues. So it's, um, it, it, it's a great, great surprise in a way, even though I've been staring at the models for months to see it on these walls and the reception that the show has gotten and that all of you have given to us who are here is remarkable. Um, I think Gerard set the stage perfectly by talking a little bit about how the NGV collection came to be. And what I will do now is talk a little bit about the Guggenheim, how it came to be, and um, also speak to you at the end about the future for the institution. Um, it's, a, it's an institution that has witnessed a lot of change, and I have been part of its history. Um, but it all began in 1937 under the leadership of the American industrialist Solomon R. Guggenheim, who, um, and this is why it's so interesting when we talk about contemporary art today, was collecting contemporary art. Now, let me just figure out my slides. Okay, so we'll start here. Um, and when Guggenheim started to collect art, he actually started collecting art like many rich American industrialists, um, without the aid of an advisor. People talk about art advisors today. There were art advisors at the beginning of the century. And he was very um, competitive in a way with other great American industrialists, people like the Carnegies, who were amassing superb collections. And I think at one point he stepped back and realized that he wasn't getting the first-rate stuff, that the collection just wasn't as good as it could be. And I don't know how many of you track the overheated art market right now, but if you were to walk into a gallery in New York and see a painting that you wanted to buy of an artist who had some reasonable reputation, um, the dealer would probably laugh and tell you that he or she might put you at the bottom of the waiting list of 100 people because everybody was buying all the best stuff. And quickly you'd find that you would have amassed a second-rate collection, and I think Solomon was on that path. He was collecting a variety of things but wasn't getting top, top great stuff. And his wife, and I'm just going to jump a slide here, um, Irene Rothschild Guggenheim, invited a young German baroness named Hilla von Riebe to paint his portrait in the 20s. And she came to a suite at the Plaza Hotel and found a man who was very susceptible and willing to be proselytized to her way of seeing uh, the world. And that was she convinced him to collect contemporary art with her assistance, and she believed in one particular type of art, which is called, I won't give you in German, but the sort of loose English translation is non-objective art. It was art without um, a basic object in the, interior, in the exterior world. It was art that came from the interior, from the inner necessity of the artist. And she believed passionately in this and convinced him that this would be the way to go. And she packed him off on, a, on his first trip to Europe as an art buyer in the early 1920s. And he went to places like the studio of Vasily Kandinsky at the Bauhaus and began to literally amass a collection. And here's a picture of Solomon and Irene Guggenheim and Kandinsky and Ribe, uh, I believe from that first trip. Um, eventually, by 1937, the Guggenheim, Solomon incorporated his holdings and created a foundation. And the foundation was formed for the promotion and encouragement and education in art 
and the enlightenment of the public. And it's very similar to our mission today, in a way. It was about showing the collection. It was about using the collection as an educational tool. And interestingly, um, well, I'll show you our new mission statement in a minute, which, but it sticks fairly close to that. But um, there was no plans at the moment to have the museum on Fifth Avenue, but the first Museum of Non-Objective Painting was held in a, um, a sort of, existed in an automobile showroom, former automobile showroom on West 54th Street, not far from the Museum of Modern Art. And here is an installation, and you can see um, that the paintings, which are largely uh, an artist that Hilla championed named Rudolf Bauer, as, uh, as she championed Kandinsky and Bauer practically simultaneously, that the works were hung in a real environment. It was very in- environmental, and it, the, there was shag gray carpeting on the floor that would sort of feel soft underfoot. The walls were lined with gray velvet. There was the music of Bach wafting through the air along with incense, and the paintings were hung low to the ground, and you were encouraged to lounge on these settees and immerse yourself in the experience of art. Um, I'm going to go back to the mission statement. Um, what, what the trustees of the Guggenheim have been, we've come a long way, and you'll see in a few minutes just how long we've come, from the early days of Solomon and Hilla, but in some senses not so far in that the earliest activities of the Guggenheim Foundation were traveling exhibitions. This was a collection that was meant to be seen, and the first showing of the collection was in South Carolina, where the Guggenheim had, um, the Guggenheim family had plantations. But it was, it started a path of collection travel that we've pursued ever since. And the mission statement is we've come to reevaluate it, and this is, you know, fairly recent work, has changed mainly not so much in promoting the understanding and appreciation of art, but in extending the boundaries of the collection. So you'll see here we mention architecture and other manifestations of visual culture. Um, This is a fairly significant departure because when Hilla and Solomon started the collection, it was exclusively non-objective art. In fact, they did not collect sculpture because that was considered too material, too much of the earth. But over time, what we have come to do is expand that beyond the modern to contemporary, to architecture, potentially design. But other manifestations of visual culture is an interesting concept because it really then means you can consider everything and anything the territory of your program. And it was an interesting debate with our trustees. Um, And how do we realize our mission? Through exhibitions, programs, research, publication... And again, you'll see the word education here in increasingly diverse, and we're also striving for a very international audience through a network of museums and cultural partnerships. And that's the second big change, that the Guggenheim has gone from being one museum in one location to a network of one museum in discontiguous locations, but more on that later. So they needed a building, and Hilla convinced Solomon to build a building. Um, and they spent a long time looking for the perfect site and the perfect architect, but her, in her mind, she chose Frank Lloyd Wright as a, an artist whose vision was sort of symbiotic with her own, and she wrote to him, I, want, I need a builder, I need a fighter, I need someone who will build a temple to the spirit, 
And in a long series of fabulous exchanges, if you ever read any Guggenheim history, um, Wright decided to, to work with Hilla and um, ultimately it took a long time. I think the initial overtures were 1942. The building didn't open until 1959 and that had to do with the wartime and finding the site and financing and design issues and everything else. But here it is, the Guggenheim in its present site on Fifth, Ave- Fifth Avenue and 89th Street being built and we're really excited because in 2009, October of 2009, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of this now landmark edifice. Um, <clears throat> It is really one of the greatest architectural landmarks of the 20th century, and it has been the site of so many extraordinary exhibitions from the Guggenheim collection to special exhibitions that we've mounted. But what Wright created was really this monument that has inspired so many people, artists, to intervene. One of, I think, the things that I'm proudest of in our history is artists who have come into the museum and done incredible site-specific installations. You'll see some slides in a few minutes. Or architects who help us install our exhibitions in this building and also intervene somehow into a very, really radical design museum. There was this one letter where Hilla was talking about having a museum without, we're not sure, no one could read it, steps or stops. But either way, we don't have steps or stops because it's this continuous spiral ramp and it creates a, con, um, a mode of viewing where you take the elevator to the top and the gravity pulls you down. Um, and it's a building that is not necessarily conducive to all types of art. Um, it has size restrictions. You can't really hang paintings that are over three meters on the ramps. Um, but when it works, it works extremely well. A challenging, challenging building, but it can make art look sublimely beautiful. And it's because you have the views across the space, and you can see works, particularly if you're looking at a retrospective, horizontally, vertically, from all different directions. Um, But the building was essentially built to house the collection, And collections are built from great collections. This is really much, very much a history of how museums have been created in New York City, if you think of the Whitney and Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney's collection or the Museum of Modern Art and the Rockefeller collection. Collections often don't spring up by just buying a work at a time and ultimately amassing something. So we had a great leader in Solomon who gave us his collection, And that was the formation, the basis of the museum. And that had 770 works in it. And over time, and here is um, actually, this is the fantastic Kandinsky composition number eight, the first work of Kandinsky's that Solomon purchased on his first buying trip to Europe. So his collection became the core. And what's interesting about Solomon's collection is it's not all non-objective or abstract. He did also have a passion for more figurative art, people like Modigliani and Chagall, and those still remain in the collection. He eventually had them all in his suites at the Plaza Hotel, but ultimately when he outgrew that, that's when we started different museum sites. The Townhauser collection is another pillar upon which the Guggenheim is built, and Houston Townhauser was from a family of very significant art dealers. His father gave Picasso his first one-person show in Paris, and um, they had galleries in 
Bern and Berlin and Munich and Paris at different times. But um, Houston, his son, was forced to flee the war and left, although he had been able to send some of his paintings and collection abroad before that to South America. He essentially last, left on one of the last boats leaving Lisbon and was able to escape the war and came to New York and rebuilt his collection in a way and gave it to the Guggenheim in the 60s with one condition and that was that the work would not travel abroad because he feared another international conflict and loss of collection. And ultimately after his death and the death of his widow, um, we were able to relax that rules, rule a bit, but the collection can travel without the express permission of the estate that he left behind. What the Tannhauser collection did for us was create a collection of 19th, late 19th and early 20th century art, which lays the groundwork for everything that happens afterwards in the 20th and 21st century. So its permanent view in the museum means that someone who's really trying to understand the art of our time can look at the fundamentals that have been created through works like Van Gogh's Mountains at San Remy that I show you here. You might see its expressionist origins or in the work of Monet or Cezanne, the beginnings of the flatness of the canvas or of color. So it's a very important permanent collection to have on view. It numbers about 60 works. Another pillar of the collection was that of Carl Nierendorf, who was an art dealer who died in test in the 40s, and the Guggenheim was able to purchase his collection of about 40, uh, 700 works, 400 works. And these were largely German Expressionism and has some extraordinary works by Paul Klee. This is one of the jewels of the collection by Klee called The Red Balloon. Um, Catherine Dreyer, a real pioneer of American modernism, also gave a small but very important collection to the Guggenheim, and here you see a beautiful fitter. And then, it took quite a while, and this is not the next uh, pillar of the collection, but in many museum generations later, we did start to expand the scope of the collection, and one of the ways, one of the identifying features of the Guggenheim collection is that it is a collection in depth that we do not do the encyclopedia, that you cannot track the entire history of art from 1887 to the present by every artist, but rather because it came as a collection of collections and a rather idiosyncratic one at best because the collector buys freely and with their own ideals in mind and they don't have to listen to curators and boards and go through all the filters, the um, collection I think was certainly has this non-objective core to it, but it has, an, has a distinguishing feature of the notion of artists in depth. And when we started to break open this history of just painting to sculpture with our second museum director, James Johnson Sweeney, um, to include with Thomas Krenz, the museum's fourth director, one of the things we were able to do was get a grant from the Maplethorpe Foundation um, to create a gallery de devoted for photography to bring 200 works by Maplethorpe into the collection and a mandate to collect photography and to exhibit photography. So you will see in this exhibition some very beautiful works from our extraordinary Maplethorpe collection. Um, something else that was part of um, the Tom Krenz and my era in terms of the collection expansion, and you'll see again that represented very well in Melbourne, 
is minimal and conceptual art. And there was an Italian count named Panza di Biumo, who in the 70s was buying American art. He bought his first Franz Klein from a matchbook cover and amassed an extraordinary collection, first of abstract expressionism, then of pop art, and then of minimal and conceptual art. The um, Abex and pop collection went to a museum in Los Angeles, but we were able in the early 90s to buy his collection of minimal and conceptual art, and it was part purchase and part gift, and really a defining collection and something we were so happy to recuperate for America. What's interesting about it was to buy the collection, which at the time cost us $32 million, and that was supposed to be half the value of it, we deaccessioned three paintings from the first half of the century, a Modigliani, a Chagall, and a Kandinsky. And the headlines were, you know, Guggenheim sells masterpieces to buy worthless paper. Worthless paper because this work existed in many cases as certificates. And as you go through the show here, you will see that some of the works, the... Um, Certainly the Solowit and the Bruce Nauman and the Lawrence Wiener, and then much later the Felix Gonzalez Torres, exists by virtue of a certificate that gives you the right to construct the work. So um, I think it was um, a brilliant, I mean, the collection is so extraordinary, has so many key masterpieces of that generation. And since embarking on this quest to bring minimalism into the collection, I think it as a movement has become so extremely important to everything, to contemporary art, to historical art, certainly to our origins as a museum of non-objective painting. We can trace the legacy of this right back to Mondrian and Kandinsky, for example. Another collection that came into the museum was the Bowen Foundation. And the Bowen Foundation was um, a collection principally of multimedia art and photography, and this is an Inigo Manglano Ovale, Inigo Manglano Ovale, um, fantastic installation called Weather, and that catapulted us into a new realm of these ambitious um, video or film or even some sculptural installations. Um, but what I didn't show you here was the Peggy Guggenheim collection. We'll pick that up in the international network, but obviously that is the other key pillar of the collection. And I'm a real believer that the way to acquire collections is not bit by bit, piece by piece, but to look for collections that are fully formed or somehow in a formative process where the donor is willing to give that collection to the institution. That is really the way we've built collections, and I'm a strong believer in that. But because the Guggenheim's mandate is to collect the art of our time, the permanent collection is a, is a constantly evolving work in process, and we're still looking to find, as I said, the donors as well as buy works individually. And this beautiful little pollock, which you'll see, came into the collection in a sort of fluky way. A former registrar was sitting next to me at a conference like this. We were um, just chatting, and he leaned over and he said, Does the Guggenheim doesn't need any Pollocks, right? Peggy had 11. And I said, well, the Guggenheim could use a major drip painting. That we don't have. We have a lot of great early Pollocks. And he said, well, I am representing a donor who is giving the, away the collection of her mother, and we've sort of placed the works, but we have one Pollock left. And um, we just, I just jumped out of my scene and said, let's go. And he said, you have to convince her to give it to us. And, and we did. So um, you'll see it in the show. It's a really lovely painting. But the way we continue to collect today is through, um, we don't have government funding. We don't have an art fund. We don't have a pot of gold at the end of any rainbow. We have acquisition committees. And we have um, an international director's council, friends of Asian art, a photography committee, a young collector's committee. And what these groups do is they meet, they, their funding 
goes to create an art fund, and these groups decide twice a year, based on what curators present, what they'd like to buy with their money. And um, it's a very empowering, exciting feeling, and often collectors are encouraged to add to the pot when something is beyond their reach. As you go through the exhibition, you'll see the, and the reason I bring this up is you'll see the labels. We'll talk about all these various committees. And it's interesting to see the show as how, how, is this, how is this collection formed? Where did these works come from? So all of these vehicles, committees, Ponza, Mablethorpe that I've talked about now, you'll recognize on the art labels. I, you know, I always go through an exhibition twice, first to see the show and then to read the labels, but that's just because I need to know how collections are being built. Um, oops, wrong way. Okay. Um, having a collection means that you have to, obviously, support that collection, and we have to present it, we have to preserve it, we have to research it, and then we have to share it and share our findings. And preservation is a very key part of what we will do. Um, and we have a conservation staff, as you do too. What's interesting to me about that is the Variable Media Initiative, um, an arm of our conservation efforts. And one of the things you might think about when you see this show is, boy, what you know? What's going to? How are we going to? What are we going to do? How could you do a show like this in a hundred years when a lot of the mediums represented may be obsolete? For example, the Felix Gonzalez candy piece. Now, I don't want to make you feel guilty and not take the candy, but that company that makes it has gone out of business. So how do we provide 700 pounds of candy a day um, or Dan Flavin's fluorescent light tubes? They no longer make fluorescent light tubes, and they certainly no longer make red fluorescent light tubes because of dye problems and uh, all sorts of environmental hazards. Or what about video? You know, we're looking at Nam June Pike single channel video TVs in TV Garden. Where do you, you know, I've ne- where do you get a TV that's not a flat screen anymore? That's not an LCD. So one of the things we're really excited about at the Guggenheim is thinking about those issues of preservation and working on this initiative, which we call Variable Media, to think about how we might, with the artist's approval and intention, migrate medium today into something that can last so that we don't just say, okay, pack it up, there is no more Dan Flavin, untitled to Jen and Ron Greenberg corridor. Um, education is also a cornerstone of what we do. What we did was we kicked the staff out of the Frank Lloyd Wright building to make an education center because we so strongly believe in that. And the staff works off-site, but like far away, all the way downtown. Uh, and through our multimedia facility, we have a variety of things. One of the jewels in our ground is the Learning Through Art program, where, and this is something that's 30 years old, where we literally sent teaching artists into inner city schools where more underprivileged students who were having a challenging time learning basic reading and arithmetic were um, found to be able to enhance those skills through art. And this has been documented now by a government survey, which proves indeed that the success of art helping to increase and improve literary literary skills is indeed um, true and viable. And we've been doing it for 30 years, so it's nice to have this study. And we're in a, a second phase of that under our belt. And it's really, really important to us and continues. And the great thing is once a year we bring the art of these students into the museum, but not to the education center, into the ramp or into a gallery so that they come and see their work in the same hallowed halls that we hang everything else. 
Um, we also have a performing arts program called Works in Process, which shows the, the performing arts as they are being created in a kind of snippet or excerpt in our auditorium. And the creator, maybe the director, the choreographer, will come and discuss with one of the artists after seeing an excerpt of a performance, the creative process. And then you go to the rotunda and you have you know, wine and cheese with the artist. So it's a really wonderful program that gets to how works of art are created. And, and it's sort of our performing arts arm. Um, but the Guggenheim um, mainly is known as an exhibition maker. And I'm showing you here these categories. And um, since 1991, we have originated uh, 253 exhibitions. And I'll tell you why that's an important statistic. Before Tom Krenz came to the museum, sort of in the waning years of the last director, Tom Messer, who I worked with for 10 years, most of our shows were coming from outside guest curators, shows that were traveling. And what we started to do was create our own exhibitions. And um, the Guggenheim program has been a little bit controversial over the years. And I just highlight this slide because everybody thinks we have now broken with our mission and we show fashion, you know, the Armani show, we show motorcycles. But when you look at the statistics, you'll see that the majority of our shows have been very mission consistent. But occasionally, we've broken the mold and have had, let's say, 12 architecture, design, and fashion shows. And they break the mold because we don't have in-house expertise in those areas or a department, per se. And we've had nine pre-modern or non-Western shows. So um, the majority of our shows are not some, you know, this crazy concoction of this man who's you know, looking to challenge the history of the Guggenheim. But what we do very occasionally, is literally break out of that box, out of our core competency or mission to shake things up a bit, and it's been very excited. exciting. The first major show that we did under Tom Francis' direction was called The Great Utopia that dealt with the Soviet and Russian avant-garde and was a brilliant show because, again, it spoke to the origins of the Guggenheim collection, and it was designed by Zaha Hadid, uh, and she had had an equation in her life with... Um, suprematism, suprematist form, and the exhibition was quite, quite beautiful. And this was the beginning of bringing architects in to help curators install shows and take on the challenge of the Brink Library building in some interesting way. Um, China, 5,000 years, another really dramatic project that certainly broke the mold. And this was designed um, by I.M. Pei. Uh, here's a very beautiful installation in the High Gallery of uh, some of the terracotta warriors from Xi'an. And we are just completed. In fact, Valerie, before she did Melbourne, uh, did helped um, work on a show of Russian art, but also um, contributed to a show of American art that was a lend back 10 years later for this show. So we sent him 300 years of American art to China, and this was supposed to have happened 10 years ago. Um, the famous Giorgio Armani fashion show, for which the Guggenheim was widely criticized. Uh, it was designed by Bob Wilson, the director, choreographer, artistic genius, and was extremely beautiful. And we treated it just like a straight retrospective. We used all the sort of criteria you would use in putting together a retrospective of a painter and brought it to bear on the, on the um, fashion designer. Frank Gehry, architect. Frank, the architect of the Guggenheim Museum, Bill Bell. This was our best attended show in history. And again, he helped design it. 
Nantun Pike. This is a case where artists, even in, under the format of a traditional show, are able to create something site-specific to respond to the building. And this piece is called Jacob's Ladder, and it's laser light. And from the top, it was actually raining down water into a pool. And on the ground floor is TV Garden. So uh, in a big, big space here. So we're happy to see it again in another iteration. Brazil Body and Soul. Um, I sigh before I say this because we brought in the architect Jean Nouvelle. And um, I'm going to tell you something I'm going to tell a lot of people. Jean wanted to design the Armani show. And Mr. Armani did not like Jean. And, and he picked, and I went to Milan to try to broker a deal, and in the end, Mr. Armani wins. He always wins. And Bob Wilson designed his show. Jean had a plan. And when Jean couldn't do Armani, Tom Krenz said, all right, you can do the next show. So it turned out to be this Brazilian show. But the thing is, he took his concept from the Armani show and applied it to Brazil. And he painted the museum black. And the concept was, if you paint the museum black, the architecture will disappear. And that would be the most radical gesture against Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, okay. So I kept saying to Jean, have you ever been to Brazil? Because, you know, it's really not about black. It's about white. And um, not only was the museum painted black, but the floors were covered with black, shiny vinyl, like black pant leather floors. Tragically, this show also coincided with 9-11. So we now had a black museum right after 9-11. And um, what we brought was this extraordinarily large Baroque altarpiece, this behemoth to New York, I mean, and installed it in the center. Uh, I think it all went a step too far, but that's just me. Um, but the show that I did love and get, gets us back to mission consistent is Matthew Barney's Cremaster Cycle. And this was a show... Of that, and you'll see here um, a culmination of a 10-year career of working out of sequence on these this film cycle of movies, and I'm sure Valerie will tell you more about it. But he filmed one of the Cremaster films partially in the Guggenheim, and it appears in the film. And that jumbotron, which is like in a sports arena, has been sort of recreated in a gallery here, so that you see all five films being played on five. Um, channels simultaneously or screen simultaneously and the blue astroturf you'll also recognize. The Art of the Motorcycle. It was actually a fabulous show. That was criticized too. And Frank Gehry designed it and he, he lined the interior of the parapet with stainless steel so it was just a reflective swirl. But the Motorcycle Show took a design object and looked at it through history, through 100 years of history, and took each object and looked at it from an artistic perspective, from a sociological perspective, and it was done at the highest caliber and really one, again, of our most popular exhibitions. A couple of views. Um, moving pictures, just to move very quickly now. This began a series of shows where we used our own permanent collection for special exhibitions, because in a way, why not? You build collections... And what do you do? You store them? No. They should become the most important sort of bricks of a very robust exhibition program. Um, Kara Walker. This is really the first time we did photography throughout the museum. Singular Forms was another show from that same cycle where we looked at minimalism, but minimalism through the lens of contemporary artists. And on the main floor, we had this very beautiful installation of Rachel Whiteread. This was alone. You'll see a Rachel Whiteread in the show. And here she had cast the undersides of 100 chairs in this very beautiful material that looked like jelly and set, of course, up all the issues of the grid and everything else. But they were somehow 
feminized. They were like perfume bottles. They were just magnificent. And you'll see Ellsworth Kelly and Bryce Martin um, above. Uh, here's two, some Donald Judds. It was a fantastic show. Um, Doug Wheeler, conceptual as well. Um, I mentioned Art in America um, because we finally did the Lindbeck show. And one of the key components of the Guggenheim's exhibition program is traveling the collection, and we're always thrilled to do it. And Art in America was part collection-based, but also part special exhibition. Um, things change, be prepared to adapt. So here's the automobile showroom in the beginning of the building, and then the Guggenheim, and then Bilbao, and then the little G sign that becomes part of the Guggenheim network. And this is sort of a statement that Tom, Tom once made. Um, it sounds, I don't know, so dramatic. But the point here is that um, what we've been thinking about is what does it mean to be a museum at the beginning of the 21st century? We've been thinking about that for a while. We thought about it in the 20th century. We're still thinking about it. And what we came up with is the concept of the global Guggenheim, the idea of one museum that could be in multiple locations, that could tell specific narratives in specific cities, that could build collections responding to the art of that region, but that where we could share in a network the Guggenheim's collection and exhibition program. And here's sort of a little map of the Guggenheim network. So you'll see, um, just I always have to check because sometimes things are on here that shouldn't be, but uh, it looks pretty good. Las Vegas, New York, um, Berlin, Venice, and Bilbao being part of the foundation, and then partnerships with St. Petersburg and Vienna. Oops. The Guggenheim became an international museum in the 1970s when Peggy, who was Solomon's niece, left her collection to the Guggenheim after much negotiation with Tom Messer, then director. She had a palazzo on the Grand Canal. Here it is. It was never completed, which is why it looks a little truncated, but it's left a very beautiful roof garden and the most beautiful place to have a party. And um, Peggy was, had an advisor, a very um, astute man named Douglas Cooper. You might have read his books on Cubism. And he was all set, she was all set to give the collection to the Tate and went there with Douglas and her 11 dogs to sign the paper. And when she got there, they quarantined the dogs. And she said, any country that doesn't love my dogs can't have my art. Got back on a plane, went back to Venice, and the rest is history. Um, Peggy was a renegade. She was the daughter of Benjamin, who went down on the Titanic with his mistress. And um, she lived between America and Europe. She was a gallerist. She was married to Max Ernst. And she built an extraordinary collection of about 300 works of art today, including um, surrealism. I just show you a very beautiful installation shot from that gallery because the Guggenheim's collection of surrealism is very thin. But it is in this notion of a network that even though the Surrealist Gallery doesn't sit in New York, it, we consider it part of the collection. And of course, we can bring works out on loan. Indeed, you have a Pollock here. She championed Pollock, gave him his, his first show in New York at the Art of the Century Gallery, Surrealism, Cubism, um, Picasso. Here's a very beautiful entryway with a calder and Picasso's bathers. And we really turned this into one of the most professional modern art museums in Venice and have expanded it a little bit around the campus of her collection. This is her courtyard or garden. This is a uh, piece from the Nasher collection by Miro. And it is really one of the jewels in our crown. So that really became, that made us an international museum a long time ago in 1976. 
Um, and I'm not going to go into great depth on the story, but we were approached by the city of Salzburg to build a museum in the rock by Hans Holine. It didn't work out. In the process, the Bosques came to us. They were in the midst of a huge economic redevelopment of their region, and they said, come take this old winery and transform it into a Guggenheim Museum. And after two years of cajoling, Tom went, took a walk around the city. I think he was jogging, actually. Saw this site at the river, which was sort of industrial wasteland, and he said, okay, you want a museum? This is what it'll take. I want this piece of land. I want to pick the architect. I want $100 million for the building. I want $20 million for the Guggenheim's endowment. I want an acquisition fund, um, $50 million, and I need operational money. Ha! And the next day, they brought him the contract. <laughs> Literally. It happened just like that. So we built Bilbao, and Bilbao was, as I said, part of this economic redevelopment project, and it changed the region. It took a depressed city that had lost its principal um, um, industry, which was um, ironworks and steel, and transformed it. And, you know, just in the first five years of operations, turned the city around, um, increased the GNP enormously. I won't go into statistics. Sitting in front of the museum in Bilbao is the second version of Jeff Koons' puppy, which has become a real icon of the city. And it's an extremely beautiful building. It has references to Frank Lloyd Wright, its interior atrium, its cantilevered walks, and I'm looking up into the atrium here. It's a building that refuses to sit still for a photo. It has this enormous gallery called The Fish that's 427 feet long. It's preposterously large. And we have created a permanent installation of Richard Serra's works there. This um, And um, the beauty of that is that it becomes sort of the identity of the permanent collection and a destination to know that it'll be there for all eternity. In, um, this is another installation uh, of Robert Morris' Labyrinth in that grand gallery. And um, it even houses classical art. This is a show called Rubens and His Age that um, was done there. And you can see these are works from the Hermitage, how beautiful these grand galleries even look with more classical things. And let me just say that um, we will celebrate the 10th anniversary of Bilbao um, amid huge skepticism that no one will come. In our 10th year in October, we will welcome our 10 millionth visitor. We will have spent $100 million on art. We will have built a permanent collection of 100 works so far and completely transformed the city. Deutsche Guggenheim Berlin happened a month after Bilbao. People don't realize that it basically almost killed us all. And Deutsche Bank, um, after the wall came down, went to reoccupy their original headquarters on Deutsche and on uh, um, Unter den Linden. And in their um, ground floor, decided to have a gallery that we would program with them. And it was designed by Richard Gluckman. And the premise of this museum, and it's so brilliant, I love it, was that they would provide funding for us to commission works by contemporary artists. But you commissioned not a work, you commissioned an exhibition. So it filled the space. And at the end of each five-year term, the um, Deutsche Bank would gift either a portion or the entirety of their collection to the Guggenheim. So it's a way to grow collections in a day and age where it's so hard to have funding for collections. This is the first one, which was um, a work by James Rosenquist. We asked him to rethink his seminal painting from the 60s called F-111, a painting done at the height of the Vietnam War, and he rethought it and made this incredible cycle. Um, we commissioned Hiroshi Sugimoto to do a photography exhibition, and he did photographs from the 
um, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in Tokyo of the Christ's Last Supper and Henry VIII and his wives, and they were majestic. Um, we commissioned Bill Viola to do one of his first major cycles of birth and death and rebirth um, called Going Forth by Day in very high production value, detailed, high-tech uh, film. Um, and we do shows there when we don't do commissions because we run a program. And one of them, um, which was very beautiful, was called Mapplethorpe and Mannerism, and it married Robert Mapplethorpe's photography from our collection with classical prints from the Hermitage collection. It was quite beautiful. Oops. Um, and here was a, um, another project with Tom Sachs called Nutsies. Um, in 2001, we were approached by the... Venetian Museum in Las Vegas who was building a little replica of the city of Venice and they thought, could we do a little replica of the Peggy Guggenheim collection? And Tom said, no, because you know, the only thing that's um, authentic about Venice is its inauthenticity. So you can't have a replica, we'll make a museum. And we brought in Rem Coolhouse and designed this space. It's a model, a little museum, which is completely made of Corten steel. And the walls that you see pivot. And the paintings are hung on the walls with magnets. And it's a very beautiful space. It's like a jewel box. We call it the jewel box. It references the beautiful, rusty, the rusty walls of Corten steel mimic the walls of the satin and moiré walls of the Hermitage. And what's fantastic about it is we partner it with the Hermitage, so sometimes we do pop art, as you see here, but sometimes we do um, our collection. Here's Kandinsky and Delaunay, and sometimes we do the Hermitage collection, and sometimes we mix it. Um, we thought that by bringing Rem Coolhouse, an extraordinary architect to Las Vegas, and the Hermitage, we would have protective cover and people could not accuse us of being crash and going to this crass and going to the city of sin. Um, but the bottom line is that um, this was a point in Las Vegas' history where they were trying to become more of a family destination. Now they do want to be a city of sin. The museum does not attract that many visitors, but we're still plugging along with the program. Um, you don't have to own art. You can be in a network. You can share art. And we do have these alliances with the Hermitage. Here is the beautiful Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. We're their 20th century collection. They're our ancient collection. And we just agree to agree to program the museum together, for example, in Las Vegas. It's sort of like having a privileged nation status. And we have a similar arrangement with the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna. And I think it's really a trend in how museums develop. Um, sharing, uh, sharing collections, sharing programming, creating these kind of loose networks, if not as firm as the Guggenheim's. Network expansion. The trustees of the Guggenheim have authorized an expansion of the network, and they said in a strategic planning process that we could look towards Asia and Latin America. We look towards Latin America, and we have an ongoing feasibility study with the city of Guadalajara. There was an artistic competition, and here is a rendering of a project. You can see it's a beautiful site um, by the Mexican architect Enrique Norton. Um, will it be built? I don't know. It's a question of funding. And this is, this is the site. So you can see why Tom really wanted to have a museum there. And I wish I could show you the competition models because each one was more breathtaking than the next. But what we are going forward with, and it's not quite Asia, is Abu Dhabi. And forget 2010. This is an old slide. 
Um, but um, Abu Dhabi is a city, one of the uh, uh, one of the Arab Emirates, and recognizing that their oil reserves will be depleted one day is looking towards an economic model that will sustain it over time. Um, Abu Dhabi sits on 90% of the oil reserves of the Emirates, so they're in pretty good shape, not like Dubai that's already out of oil. And you see it on the map. Um, you see the neighboring Dubai. People get them completely confused, Dubai, Abu Dhabi. But um, we helped develop a master plan um, for something called Sadiat Island. And here is an example of the island, and it would be rimmed with these on the beach with a series of museums and the master plan called for cutting a kind of grand canal through the interior, which is also rimmed by a series of pavilions so that they could accommodate international art festivals. And this is all part of a basic master plan to take basically nothing and bring, make it a cultural center and a business center. And this is signing our feasibility study with um, the head of the royal family and Tom Krenz. And this is um, what they wanted was success. So they went to Frank Gehry. They said, you have to do a Frank Gehry Museum. So this is the site. We took the best site. And, um, and it's a beautiful museum by Frank Gehry that's made out of these wind tunnels of alabaster that will help bring the hot air up through the space. And you'll see parallels to Bilbao, another big, big gallery. But um, it's very, very different in its materials, no metal. Uh, and this is um, the model by Jean Nouvel for the museums of France that have agreed as a group to come in and create a Louvre, a Quai Branly, a Musée d'Orsay, a Centre Pompidou under this fantastic souk-like um, dome that will let light in. And then there's a, a variety of beautiful buildings underneath for all the various museums of France and fantastic waterways. And this is Jean Nouvel in a very... I know I said I didn't like Jean Nouvel before in his Armani Brazil design, but this, I think, is a brilliant project. And um, this is Zaha Hadid's Performing Arts Center, which could have um, multiple auditoriums and something like 13 different performances going on at once. I know they're talking to places like Lincoln Center and International Art Festivals, very beautiful building. And this is Tadeo Onto's Maritime Museum that sort of looks like a beautiful sailing ship on the horizon. So here's a, a general... Oops, we didn't want that. Uh, here's a general overview. Um, Maritime Performing Arts Center, the Louvre, the Guggenheim, and um, there will be a local museum devoted to local heritage by a local architect and, and then some younger architects who've done these other pavilions. Um, this is just the board of the Guggenheim Foundation. This is not particularly relevant to this discussion, but I do want to end by saying that we have we are in a stage now in preparation for our 50th anniversary of doing an exterior restoration of the Guggenheim building. In the late 80s, early 90s, we restored the interior, but the Guggenheim, ever since it's built, has been cracking. It was really an experiment more than anything else, a concrete building built without expansion joints, and from day one, as the concrete expanded and contracted, little fine cracks have opened up. Um, that happens to everybody, but when you get to be about 50, you start to say, hmm, is this the best I could look? So um, we decided to, after years of study and looking at new methodologies for filling the cracks, we are in the process now of um, restoring the building. And it's been under scaffold, and hopefully by the end of the year, the scaffold will come down and we'll have 
patched and painted and remediated a few structural problems on the top ramp and replaced some of the perimeter skylight. We did the main dome years ago, and for our 50th anniversary, we will be as good as new. We will be... uh, This is what it looks like. We actually took all the paint off the building, and this is sort of what it looked like underneath, like how you look without makeup when you wake up in the morning. Uh, So this is just part of the study process. Anyway, so we will... Um, celebrate our anniversary and this is to end our vision statement which is different than our mission statement but it really I think addresses this idea of the Guggenheim as a cultural platform that can speak with respect to contemporary culture at the beginning of the 21st century it speaks to the idea of a network of museums of superlative exhibitions of sharing the collection of using art as a communicator on a global scale to promote the understanding of international culture, and that's certainly something we hope to do in the Middle East, and um, really just to strive for excellence and the highest cultural values. So um, these are the kind of things that our board sits around and discusses and reevaluates all the time, but helps provide the rationale for our expansion into this cultural network, our expansion of mediums within the museum itself, and also part of the reason why we are very thrilled and happy to not store the collection but share it with the widest possible audience through exhibitions such as the one that's here in Milburn. Thank you very much.